Well, welcome once again to the Graceway Sunday School Hour. I appreciate you being here and it's an honor to be able to speak to you and I do pray for you and pray that the Lord blesses you and blesses your class for His glory and also for the good of the church. And thank you for all that you do. Let's uh, take a look at our lesson for August 20th of 2023. And uh, we're going to talk about the gospel does what the law could uh, never do. And um, when we try to use the law and we try to make it to where it alters our behavior, notice that it does that mainly out of fear. There's usually some kind of a threat on it. Cults will do that. They'll say you have to do this or you can't go to heaven or you'll go to hell or God will leave you or the promise will be uh, null and void, that type of thing. And uh, everybody's afraid. Do you remember there was a, um, a TV show in the 70s? We've got to stretch back here a little bit. Uh, the wife would say to the husband, God's going to get you for that, you know? And uh, everybody would laugh. They had a big laugh track on it. And, and I think that that's what a lot of people kind of think the uh, whole idea about God and a relationship with God is that he's standing there ready to hit you with a, I don't know, a ball bat or a bolt of lightning. And he's just, come on, give me a chance. Just give me a reason. Give me a reason. That kind of thing. Um, that's not the way God is presented in the Bible. In the Bible, God is presented both Old and New Testament as being loving, as being full of mercy and all of that. Now, he does have his wrath and you can't just treat him like an old shoe and expect that everything's going to go well. But it's not like he is hoping you'll do something wrong so that he can clobber you. God's going to get you for that. And neither is it the Flip Wilson thing, you know, when he did that um, character Geraldine uh, he would always, she would always, he or she, whatever he was playing. It's kind of funny thinking about that with everything going on nowadays, isn't it? Uh, uh, he would say in there when he did something wrong, well, the devil made me do it. And I think that for most people, it's this idea that the devil has all this power to make you do things that are wrong and you don't really have any way to fight him or resist him. And then the other thing is, and God is over there just waiting for you to do anything so that he can pounce on you and so he can clobber you. And that's kind of the way the law and legalism sort of works. You better watch it. You better not, or you know what's going to happen to you. Uh, do you remember your parents? I don't know if yours ever did this or not, but um, I, I saw a thing on Facebook the other day and I thought, boy, is this ever true? We're seeing a generation now where parents go, uh, if you're crying, let me buy you something and make you happy. And then, it, and that's not verbatim. And then it said, but I grew up in the generation where the parents said, uh, if you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. And I think all of this messes us up in the way that we see God. I think about the fact that the Bible said, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And another way of translating the word if in that is since, since God is for us. And that's probably a little bit better for our understanding because it's not, you know, well, I know that God would be for me if I could ever figure that out. Well, you didn't have to figure that out. Christ did that for you. And because of Christ, God is indeed 
for you. And he's not waiting for you just to mess up and saying, you know, just, uh, you know, give me a shot and I'll let you have it. Um, he is, nobody is more interested in your success, in your um, spiritual growth, in your knowledge of the word of God, in your sanctification than he is. He's the one that does it after all. So let's go back to uh, our introduction here. Trying to keep the law may alter your behavior mainly out of fear, but here's the kicker. It cannot change your nature. You're still the same person on the inside, still controlled by the same things, wanting to do the same things. And the fact that the law says thou shalt not just makes you want to do it all the more, even though Maybe before you read it, you didn't really care that much about it. Now it's killing you because you can't do that. And you don't like the fact that anybody is telling you what to do. You'd rather do it yourself and you'd rather be on your own. And so the law is in some ways to a lot of people, in a lot of ways, it's frustrating because it changes behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. The same desires are there. The thoughts are the same, and it's uh, only after, uh, uh, you know, a certain amount of time that um, something's going to happen, okay? The Bible says that um, the dog returns to its vomit and the pig returns to the mire. And maybe you can control that for a while, but not for long. After a while, it just eats at you and it begins to take control of you. Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And... Um, you know, when people change their minds and they change their behavior, it's usually only after there's been enough that has happened to them or they have seen happen or think is going to happen that they are operating out of fear. The law doesn't make you operate out of love and uh, compassion for other people. And it doesn't change your behavior because you just simply love God so much. You don't want to uh, disobey him or anything. It usually has the idea of penalty and hurt and trouble and problem and all of that. And so much so that maybe you don't commit adultery, but boy, do you ever have trouble controlling your thought life, which Jesus said, that's where the issue really is, right? And so uh, lost people can change their minds, but only believers can have their minds renewed. And that's a big, big difference. And people get, who get saved have a new position. They're a new creation in Christ. And uh, you remember in the book of Ezekiel, um, the Lord said, I will take out your heart of stone. That's pretty useless. Dead, right? And put in a heart of flesh. And by that, he doesn't mean a, a heart of a old sin nature type thing. He's putting in a heart that actually beats and feels and thinks and performs right. And so that's what happens when you get saved, something that the law could never do. So let's look at our text in Galatians 3, 26. That's where we're going to begin and go through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, have you ever heard anybody say uh, when they do something they know is wrong and they say, well, you'll just have to forgive me. I can't help it. This is the way my dad was. This is the way my grandpa was. It just runs in the family. And we try to blame uh, what we do wrong on the way we were raised or our heritage, our culture, uh, you know, uh, what everybody else did around us. And Paul is telling us here that when we are in Christ, none of that matters anymore. None of that has the right to control us anymore because we have a new principle living within us, and that's the law of life in Christ Jesus. Remember Romans 8 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that's the key, and uh, who walk not according to the uh, flesh, but according to the Spirit. You became a new creature in Christ. Your position is new. Everything about you is new. You even received a new nature and a new spirit that is living. And you can now understand the word of God. You have a desire to please God. You have a desire to do what is right because your nature has been changed. And that didn't happen by the law. That happens by the Holy Spirit at the moment that we're saved. And so some people say things like, um, uh, there was a song that was popular, well, I was in Tuttle, so good night, that's uh, going on 30 years. And uh, everybody just loved it, and they would, you know, hoop and holler and applaud and all of that, and the song said basically, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. My associate pastor there pointed out something. He goes, where in the Bible do you find that you are just anything. It's true, we're a sinner saved by grace, and we ought to be happy about that, and we ought to, you know, hoop and holler over that, because God did a great thing when he sent his son to die for us, and to pay for our sin debt, take the wrath of God, and give us new life in him. But to say we're just a sinner, uh, what he pointed out to me was, that sort of gives you a way out. Well, I couldn't help it. You know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But when you understand you're a sinner saved by grace with new life, new power, a new relationship with God and favor with God in your life, then that changes everything. Then what's the excuse? And, you know, we like to have some excuses. I, I messed up and I knew I shouldn't have done that. Well, how dumb is that if you know you shouldn't have done it and you did it anyway? And I've heard people say when they get consequences to their disobedience, I knew this was going to happen. Really? You knew it and you did it anyway? I mean, folks, think about it. That's crazy. And you didn't accept that as an excuse for your kids. So why do we try to throw that up before God as if that gives us some justification for our sin? So God didn't put us under the law. He had Christ to fulfill the law so that we could be free in Christ Jesus, gave us his spirit so that we would have power, gave us a new nature so we not only have power, but we have the desire to do his will. That's something that didn't exist before we were saved, and you don't get that through circumcision or anything else. Okay? So number one, 
The gospel makes us acceptable to a holy God. And this is why we uh, talk about if God is for us, then uh, who could be against us? Because God does not uh, count us as an enemy, but he counts us as a friend. Jesus, remember, said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. And uh, to think that we could be a friend of God, to think that we could be the beloved of God, to think that God would care about us. And this is what we're talking about here. For you are all uh, sons. The Greek word for son there is huios. And it doesn't mean like a little bitty infant crawling around. Um, We're talking about having the status of an adult, full-fledged son, someone qualified to be an heir of his father. And that's why the Bible talks about us being heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And we have that status before him. We have power. We have his armor. We have his presence. We have his guidebook, the word of God. We have all of the things that we need to be everything that we are supposed to be. We're we're all sons of God. And so I know someone may be a new Christian and we may call them a babe in Christ. And from a human standpoint, that certainly is true. But from the spiritual standpoint, they have all the rights and privileges of an heir of God, an adult son. And that comes, Paul says, through faith in Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ, you don't have any of that. You don't have a standing with God. In fact, he considers you an enemy. You're an enemy of the cross, it says, I believe, in the book of Philippians. And we're hostile. And there's a war that is going on. And we don't want anything to do with God. And we don't want him to control us. We have no desire to obey him. But then when that moment happens, when we were saved, look at verse 27. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. Now, the word baptized, baptismo in the Greek, is a common word. It wasn't a religious term back in those days. It was a term that anybody would use for anything. I've got a dog that I'm giving a bath, so I baptized him into a tub of water so that uh, we could wash him. I have these dishes, and I have to get them clean after supper, so I immerse them into the water that was in the sink. I baptized them. Is, um, doesn't that sound funny to say that? But that's what they did in uh, everyday life in the Koine Greek language. Now, because believers were baptized, because they would be dunked, because they would be immersed in a river or a pond or a tank or something like that, uh, Paul used that word and others used that word to describe when you got saved, God took you, and I mean, he plunged you, he immersed you into the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is not something that happens after you're saved that makes you talk in tongues or something like that. Baptism in the Spirit is that moment where God takes a dead sinner, makes him alive, and then as you surrender to him as Lord and Savior, he plunges you into the Holy Spirit. You're immersed in the Holy Spirit and uh, into Christ Jesus. Just as water baptism makes you a member of a local body. Spirit baptism makes you a member of the universal body of Christ. And so you put on Christ. Now, if I get into the baptistry that is behind me, let's say that it has water in it, and I get into that and get soaking wet, and then I get out of the water 
you're going to notice something. I'm taking water with me. I have not only gone into the water and been baptized into the water or immersed in it, but when I came out, I have put on water. It's from head to toe. It's all over me until I dry off and change clothes. But when I come out of the water, I've got the water on me. And uh, that's what Paul is saying here. You get saved. You get baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ Jesus. And now you've put on Christ because you are soaked with Christ, I guess we could say. And so uh, Paul talks about that. The law never promised that and could never do anything like that. So we're children of God at this point, as opposed to what? Well, John 8, uh, 44 says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because in him there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character or resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that's what you were like before you were saved. That's true of every person that is not a child of God. Not everybody is a child of God, no matter what the politicians or liberals might say. Some are children of the devil, according to Jesus Christ. Then they get saved and they become a child of God. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You're not just the same old you with a little Jesus added to you. You are a new creature in Christ. And everything that is written in Colossians 1, 12 through 14 is about you and about every believer in Christ. The law could never do that. It could restrain you for a little while, but it could never translate you into a new kingdom, give you a new nature like that. Moving along. The gospel immerses us into Christ. For as many as you, uh, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I got a little ahead of myself, but that's the point about going into Christ and then having Christ all over you. Just like when you go into the water, you take the water out with you. And so Christ is on the outside of us, but he also dwells on the inside of us. The Bible talks, for example, in the book of Ephesians, over 40 times in Ephesians, it mentions about us being in Christ, in Christ, in the Lord, things like that. That's one thing. That's what Paul's talking about here. But Paul also says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you. One has Christ on you and outside of you, and the other one has Christ in you. Okay? So somebody said, if my insides are taken care of by Jesus and my outsides are taken care of by Jesus, then I'm in pretty good shape. The law could never do that. Number three, the gospel unifies us. Now, the law was designed basically for, um, think of it like this. The law through its rituals revealed Christ and pointed to the Messiah that one day would come. That would be one thing. The law revealed sin, just like a mirror reveals that you have a dirty face. The law reveals sin. Paul said, I didn't even know what covetousness was until the law told me about that, right? And then number three, 
the law also would make God's people distinct. When uh, Israel came out of Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai on their way to the promised land, God did some things into them. They would dress different. They acted different. Their customs were different. They ate differently. They had different rituals. They even had surgery on the males. Remember that? And so they were to be distinctly different as the people of God. And so the law could do that. The law can make you uh, weird, maybe even weird in a good way. We are, after all, God's peculiar people. The law can reveal sin. And so you and I can look at the Ten Commandments and we can look at other parts of the law and say, you know, there's a principle here. There's something that I need to learn from all of this. But it could never, never really change you or do anything to you except make you different and make you kind of weird. That's why people hate the Jews. The devil hates the Jews for theological reasons, but the world hates the Jews because they're of their father, the devil, and they just don't like them because they're just so different and so weird. But notice what the gospel does, where the law divides us and causes us to point fingers at each other and causes us to not have fellowship with other people. The gospel unifies us. In verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And think about those things that he said there. In the ancient world, these things were big deals. If you were a slave, then you weren't free. Okay? And if you were free, then you weren't a slave, right? If you were a Jew, uh, you weren't a Greek. But if you were a Greek, which was one of the ways they talked about another label for just Gentiles in general. Everybody who was not a Jew was considered to be a Greek, and everybody that uh, wasn't really a Gentile was a Jew. That's the way the Bible looks at things. Look at the distinctions here. And there's neither slave nor free. Uh, there is neither male nor female. Uh, think about the world we live in. Women can do just about anything men can do. Now, the Bible puts some restrictions on them being in leadership and preaching and that type of thing. Paul said, I would not use, uh, allow a woman to uh, teach nor have authority over a man, right? And uh, we think about uh, the qualification for an elder, a deacon, husband of one wife. It's hard to do if you're uh, a woman. Now, the transgender movement, see the attack there? You can go back and gender is fluid. You can be either one, but not, not the way the Bible is. And there are things that we can do, but Paul makes it clear here that even though there are certain things men can do and uh, women can't, and by the same token, there are certain things women can do that men really can't do biologically and other things like that. And so Paul is just saying, but nobody is second class. It's just a different role. We all have the same creative worth. We all have the same salvation worth. We are all one in Christ. We just have different functional roles that God has assigned to us. It's not because one is a big dog and another one's not. It's just simply because it's the way we were created and made in the design of God. And so it's not that these differences don't exist. It's not even that they don't matter. They, they kind of do. The problem is when we look at it through the eyes of Christ, we have to use different eyes, spiritual eyes. And spiritual eyes will cause us to see that we may be different. It doesn't deny the difference. 
when I used to uh, run around with Wayne Robinson, it was pretty obvious I was white and he was African-American. Pretty obvious we had some different cultural differences and we would laugh about those kind of things and uh, joke about those kind of things and tease about those kind of things. And uh, one time I was going to meet him for lunch and he said, uh, is that uh, your time or CP time? I said, what's CP time? And he said, that's colored people's time. And, you know, we laughed about some of that kind of stuff. And um, that, that's fine. But here's the thing. When it came to him and me, did I have a higher standing in Christ because I'm white? Did he have a higher standing in Christ because he was black? And liberation theology and critical race theory would actually put him uh, ahead of me in that situation because I come from a line of white people, which means we're just naturally racist and naturally oppressors. Well, the truth is all of us are sinners who've come short of the glory of God and there's none righteous, no, not one. So throw, throw CRT and all that kind of stuff out the window. It's not biblical. It's Marxist and communist, actually. What that meant was Wayne and I have equal standing in Christ just because of what our skin color or our background or whether we've been oppressed or not. No, we have it because Christ died on the cross for us and saved our soul. So we all have the same creative worth, but we have different functional roles and none of these differences affect our relationship with Christ. It's not like whenever we get ready to pray, there's a whole bunch of us getting ready to pray and the Lord Jesus goes, hey, hold on, hold on. You guys are all talking at once. Be quiet. Let me hear from just the preachers. Let me hear from just the Sunday school teachers. Let me hear from just the elders. Then we'll get to the rest of you all later on. It's never like that. And we are all seen as equal in the Lord Jesus Christ, one in him. And sadly, the church has not always recognize that or live by that, have they? There's been a lot of racism in the church. There have been times when the people that were ordained put themselves over and above those who were not ordained or not priests or bishops or whatever you want to say. And uh, there have been a lot of times when people have used Bible verses out of context and wrongly to try to put down women. Do I believe that the husband is supposed to be the head of the household? I do, not because I think it, not even because I like it sometimes, but that's what the Bible says. But is that an excuse to put my wife down? Is that a, an excuse to abuse her and not to love her? No, not at all, because the Bible says I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Now that's a tall, tall order, and that doesn't give me the upper hand. That means that I probably sin in our relationship a whole lot more than she does. Number four, notice this. The gospel brings you into a covenant with God. And it says in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Remember, we talked about that. Abraham's seeds are all of the Jews, but Abraham's seed is specifically Christ, who is his descendant according to the flesh, the one that is the blessing to all nations because he alone can give salvation. So if you're in Christ, God looks at you just as he looks at Abraham's seed, which means he looks at you and me just as he looks at Jesus because he's looking at us through Christ because we are 
in Christ. We're just as accepted as Christ is. We're just as welcome in heaven as Christ is. And he loves us with the love that he has for Jesus. And so we're heirs according to the promise. And so all of this happens not because we do right or did right or got enough right stuff to where we checked all the boxes. And uh, I heard somebody, a Jewish guy, he was talking about having a moral bank account. And what he was saying is if you do enough moral deeds and have enough in your bank account, then you can do some immoral deeds and you just take a withdrawal out of your account. Kind of like if I've got $15,000 in my bank account, that'd be nice. And uh, I need to spend a thousand over here to uh, fix something. Then I just take it out of the 15,000 and uh, I do whatever I need to do. And he was saying that God keeps a moral bank account and people should too, because I may do something evil one of these days and I need to have a big enough moral bank account that it'll cover that withdrawal. Well, that's quite a thought and it's uh, quite ingenious. It's a little bit different way of saying uh, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I mean, that's kind of in there, just a little bit different take on it except that uh, that never works and the law could never, you could never keep the law well enough to get a big enough moral bank account to take anything out of it. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what they are? In their moral bank account, they have nothing. They don't have anything they can withdraw out of that to cover their sins. And that's why we need a savior. And that's why we have to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to consider Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 20. It says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you uh, are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. What's that all about? The relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Somehow God has taken us who were not Jews, who were not children of Abraham's DNA. And because the Jews did, didn't believe and some of those branches are broken off, I think it's a reference to John 15. He breaks off branches that don't bear fruit. And what does he do with you as a Gentile, this wild olive tree? He grafts you in to the uh, olive tree that he has created that is uh, part of Israel. And so you and I, are not physical Israel, but we are spiritual Israel and we inherit those promises and God doesn't see any difference between us and the people that inherit the promises of Abraham because we're all one in Jesus Christ. So the keeping of the law makes you appear different outwardly, but it leaves you sinful and still unacceptable to God. Grace, however, changes us and we're transformed, and might I add, it comes from the inside out, and God looks upon the heart. Therefore, 
we're acceptable to God, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. So Paul is, uh, you know, hitting, hitting a home run here as he is telling the uh, Galatians, you know, you're, you're taking a second class approach to all of this when you've already got first class. Why would you steal a broken down Volkswagen when you've got a Cadillac in the garage? I guess it'd be one way of saying it. So think about what Christ has done. Think about what he did for you through grace that the law could never do and rejoice in your standing in Christ. And that's the point of the lesson. That's what we really need to grasp and understand. Well, thank you for your time. I pray the Lord will bless you as you prepare to teach or as you are keeping up with your Sunday school class. I appreciate it. And may the Lord bless you and we'll look forward to seeing you again next week.